Isn't it great that as the people of God, we can look forward to the day when Jesus comes again and carries us away. That is a great, great thought. Isn't it great that there was actually for a brief minute some sun? I don't know if everybody caught it, but it was there briefly for a brief moment. Uh, it was good, good to see the sun. Uh, I was beginning to build an ark. Uh, I don't know which other seven of you were going to get on, but, uh, well, six, I guess I'd take Kenya with me. Uh, yeah. And the three grandkids. So that's, uh, let's see, let's, uh, that's five. So uh, anyway, there's a few slots left. Maybe, uh, I guess that just leaves one son-in-law. I don't know which one, but anyway, Okay. We have been for several weeks, several months actually now, in the book of First Peter, thinking about the idea of uh, this is Peter's guide, Peter's traveler's guide to foreigners in our world. And we have looked at that for several weeks, and we are now in chapter 5, which is the last chapter of First Peter. Don't get your hopes up. I know what some of you are thinking. Peter begins to conclude his letter. That doesn't mean we're concluding. But Peter begins to conclude his letter here. And in much of what he says in the rest of the letter, he calls and talks to and instructs individuals or certain groups of people. He's already done that to slaves and to wives and to citizens about how that we're to submit to the government. And now in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, he speaks to elders. And this is what he says. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You know, any organization, any group of people that's going to matter, that is going to accomplish something, must have some type of organization to it. You know, whether it's a, a, an athletic team that needs to have a coach, an assistant coach, and a captain, and, and somebody who's going to kind of take charge and say, this is how we're going to do things. Or whether it's a company, a business who needs a CEO to kind of take the reins and a CFO to work on the, uh, the books and, and so, you know, somebody who ultimately is kind of in charge and has authority and has a responsibility. I, Chuck keeps reminding me over and over again because I make, I make this mistake so often. I talk about the fact that we live in America in a democracy. We do not live in a democracy. We live in a republic. We do have a democratic right to elect officials who then vote on certain laws and certain things. We elect a president who then writes orders and does the things that a president. We do not vote on everything. It is not a democracy. 
I don't know how that would work. I don't know how it's working and how we're doing. But, you know, anyway, that's not the way it works. You know, you cannot, every time a government needed to do something, you cannot set up an election for all the citizens to vote on. That's why we have a Congress and a Senate and those type things. And the church itself is not a democracy. God has ordained a certain structure, a certain leadership within each congregation. God has provided that structure. He's given us a pattern in which we follow. And one of the things, if you were not raised in the church of Christ, or if you're visiting perhaps, you will find that that our structure is a little different than most other Christian organizations, Christian churches, bodies, whatever you want to call them, that our structure is a little different, but our structure is patterned from what we see in the New Testament. Our structure is patterned from what we see Peter or Peter and, and the other apostles laying out early on and then teachings that we see through the rest of the New Testament. Now, Scripture makes it clear, absolutely clear, that Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. You can find it in Ephesians. You can find it in Colossians. You can find it other places in scripture. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. There's one head and there's one body. That's normally the way it works, right? If we see a two-headed thing, we know that that's weird. Or if we see a one-headed thing with two bodies, we know that's weird. The norm is one head and one body. And Jesus Christ is the head of the body that is the church for whom he gave his life. But within the body, within the church, under Christ's headship, there is a structure and an organization that God has laid out. And so first of all, we see that God established the eldership. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas had gone on their first missionary journey. And they had gone to places like Antioch and Lystra and Iconium and Derby, And now they were on their way back. And it seems a little odd that instead of, you know, I don't know about you, but once I've been somewhere, I've seen that, want to see something new. So if I've been through Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, then on my way back, I might want to go to different places. But no, Paul and Barnabas go back through Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And it says this, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders from among them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And I think that it's important to notice a couple things about this. And that is, first of all, they appointed elders in each church. Each congregation, each church family is what we call, we use the word autonomous. That means self-governing, essentially. That means that we have a certain amount of, of, of leeway as the church that meets here in Dangerfield to do things our way that fit us, not to go against God's word. We'll get to that in a minute. But things that might work here in Dangerfield don't work in Ghana. Things that work in Dangerfield don't work in Brazil. And things that work in Brazil don't necessarily work in Dangerfield. 
And so God has set up that there is no higher authority here on earth than the local church body and the eldership that is over that particular church body. And I think that God did this for a purpose, obviously. I don't think God does anything without a purpose. But I think one of the purposes is, is that is to protect the local church family. You see, this way, if the church out there somewhere goes wacko, goes off the rails, starts worshiping in a not right manner or or starts to take on some belief that is not in accordance with God's will or just, you know, goes into some type of apostasy or heresy, that doesn't affect us. It doesn't affect us here. Because there is no overriding authority that dictates to each individual congregation. Each individual congregation has its own elders. Paul and Barnabas did not set up an eldership of Asia Minor. They appointed elders in Lystra, in Iconium, in Antioch, in Derby, And each congregation had their own set of elders. I think it's also important to notice that there was a plurality of elders in each church. They appointed elders in each church. It was not an elder. It was not, you know, the right archbishop or whatever, you know, in each church. It was a group of elders in each congregation. And again, I think with purpose. You see, when one person is in charge, when one person has all the authority, that is a dangerous situation, is it not? If one person is making all the decisions, if one person is doing all the teaching, if one person, then it doesn't take much to lead an entire group astray. But when there is a collective plurality of elders who are making the decisions, who are doing the teaching, then it makes it more, it makes it much more difficult. Not that it can't happen. But it makes it much more difficult for a congregation to slide away into false teaching and into apostasy and into heresy. It allows also for a variety of talents and personalities and perspectives. Now, I got to tell you, I know, I know that my way is always the right way. I'm absolutely sure of that. But it is amazing when you get in a group and you hear other opinions and other thoughts, how, how less absolute my absolutivity is. Oh, there may be another way to do this. I won't say that it's better, but another. And yes, oftentimes better. But if you're only dealing with one person and one person's perspective and viewpoint, you don't get that variety. As an eldership, as a plurality of elders, we are able to share each other's differences and things that we, that we have to help. Now, the Bible gives us qualifications for elders. You've probably heard this before, but I want to go ahead and read them. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verses 1 through 7, Timothy writes, 
Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must be not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the, as the devil. He also must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And then in Titus chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, as we look at those qualifications, the qualities of an elder, we'll notice that some of them are subjective. In other words, he ought to be hospitable. Well, my definition of hospitable and your definition of hospitable may be two different things. He shouldn't be quick-tempered. Well, your definition of quick-tempered and my definition of quick-tempered may be, we may, we may vary on that range of quick-temperedness. And so we're not looking for necessarily in some of these an exact, but we get an overall picture of the kind of person that God is looking for. I think one of the other things we find out in those qualifications is that nobody is going to absolutely perfectly meet every one of those. That's going to be kind of difficult. And again, I think we're talking about an overall perspective of the kind of person that God wants. But he does want these qualifications. He does want these qualities. It's important again to remember that elders are God's idea. The eldership is God's idea and his ordained leadership. So that leads us to our second question, which is what do elders do? What do elders do? You know, there is a big difference between qualifications and what a person is supposed to do and what that job requires. To be a teacher in the state of Texas... I assume, you know, we'll just make generalities, but you got to go to school and you got to get, you know, a degree in education or you got to take some classes or whatever. And you have to pass some tests and maybe do some student teaching. And once you do that, you are qualified or certified to teach school. But does that mean you're going to be a good teacher? Does, does any of all of that 
really say anything about what a teacher does. Some of you remember several years ago, I went back to to Commerce to get my teaching certificate in elementary education. Now, I didn't quite finish. One stupid geometry course that they never offered at the right time. But let's just pretend that I took that one geometry course I needed and I got certified, qualified to teach. Do you realize the only thing keeping me from teaching your kindergarten kid to read is a geometry course? I would have been certified, qualified to teach children to read. Would I really have been qualified? No. No, I was looking at fifth, sixth, seventh graders and teaching them math. You didn't want me. You don't want me teaching your kindergarten kid how to read. That's a disaster for all of us. You all know, you know, I mean, I'm illiterate in six languages, including English. A policeman, if you want to be a police officer, you go to a police academy. You take a test. You shoot at the range. You have a physical agility test, I imagine, at some point in time. What does that really say anything about what a police officer does? No. These characteristics and qualifications that we read about elders, it really doesn't explain what elders do. Now, there was a little bit in there where it talked about, you know, if a man can't manage his own house, how can he manage the church of God? Well, that kind of suggests what he does. And then in Titus, it talked about how that he needed to be able to teach and refuse false, refute false doctrine. That says a little bit about what he does. But the best sense of what elders are and what elders do is found in the words that are used to describe them in Scripture. There are three Greek words in our New Testament that describe the same group of people. And it's those words that really give us an essence of what elders do. The first word is the word presbyteros. Okay? And that is the word that is translated in your English translation more times than not, elder. When Peter says, I appeal to you elders as a fellow elder, that's that word. Now, some of you may have a translation that that translates it presbyter. Maybe some older translations, but it's the word elder. And we get the idea that this word, and Peter, Peter, I believe, was an elder in the church at Jerusalem. He was an apostle, but he was also an elder in the church at Jerusalem. There were other elders in the church at Jerusalem who weren't apostles. James, for example, was an, was an elder in the church there, but was not one of the, it's not James that was an apostle, it's James that wasn't an apostle, that was an elder. There's the idea from this word, you get the idea of a man who is mature. To what extent is your own definition? Wise to some extent. Whose opinion and teaching have insight and value and worth. And somebody who is biblically sound. You remember when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt... You know, his father-in-law came to him and said, look, you can't do this all on your own. You've got to set aside some folks to help you with this. Some folks who can handle disputes and manage what's going on. You know, and those became known as the elders in the Old Testament. 
And in the New Testament, we have that same word being used to describe this group of people. The second word that is used to describe what we traditionally call elders is the word episkopos. And that is translated in our English Bibles as either overseer or bishop. You'll notice when Timothy wrote, excuse me, when Paul wrote to Timothy about the qualifications, he used that word, overseer, overseer. And it has to do with the idea, and we get the idea of authority and responsibility. You know, in any organization, decisions have to be made. And there has to be some ultimate authority. To make that decision, otherwise you have chaos, right? It's like when your family's going out to eat, or maybe it's just husband and wife, I don't know. And it's, well, where do you want to eat? I don't care wherever you want to eat. Well, I really don't care wherever you want to eat. Well, I don't care wherever you want to eat. Meanwhile, I'm just passing by all the restaurants. Somebody's got to make a decision. Somebody's got to make that decision. Same is true in any organization. Now, are there times in which decisions might be based on popular opinion? Sure. You know, I've talked before, you know, the color of the carpet. If when it was time to to pick the color of the carpet, if we just wanted to go, we wanted to present the congregation with the three top, Choices and everybody vote and whatever color carpet got the best vote, most vote. Well, then that's what we go with. Anything wrong with doing that? There's nothing wrong with doing that. It's a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of faith. It may be a matter of taste, but you know, and, and so there wouldn't be anything wrong with doing that. But you can't operate making every decision like that. See, one of the things that is important to remember is, is that a lot of times we as individuals, we get tunnel vision. We only think of what is best for me and mine. What is best for the people that are close to me, what I think is going to be best for them. But see, an eldership has to think of what's going to be best for the congregation overall. What's going to be best for everybody. And what maybe necess- what may- one person may think is best for them may not be what is best for the entire congregation. And the elders have to take into consider the entire flock. What is going to be best, not even just here, but on down the road as well. And decisions have to be made. And ultimately, the elders are those overseers. And the third word that is used to describe the same group of people is the word poimane. And it is generally translated in our English Bibles either shepherd or pastor. And this is where a lot of confusion comes in between ourselves and other religious groups. But from this word, you get the idea of someone who takes care and feeds and protects the flock. It's that word shepherd or pastor. Now, any of these words are interchangeable and describe the same group of men. In fact, here in 1 Peter, in our verses tonight or this morning, we see that all three of these words are used together 
to the elders, that's that word presbyter, presbyteros, to the elders among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds, that's that word poimane, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, episcopos. Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over them, uh, trusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So we see in this one section, all three words are used to describe the same group of people. Elders, shepherds, overseers. You could have used the word presbyter, pastor, Bishop, got myself confused there. But also in Acts chapter 17, you have the same thing. Go ahead, Johnny. In Acts chapter 17, it says, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for, not fro, for, obviously the computer made a mistake. (laughs) Sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And then it discusses kind of what went on. And then in verse 28, it says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. So again, in the same context, you have all three words. You describe the same group of people. Now, I do not know why traditionally in the church of Christ, we have almost exclusively held on to the word elders. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. Perfectly fine. That's the word Peter used here when he talks. There's nothing wrong with that. But several years ago, one of our young men went off to college. And he came back home quite distraught. He wanted to talk to me. Because he'd been worshiping at a church where, you know, his college was. And he was quite distraught about the fact that they did not have elders at this church. They had shepherds. And I said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with using that designation. Peter used all three talking about the same group of people. Luke, in talking about Paul and the the church elders in Ephesus, used all three to describe the same group of people. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think in a lot of churches, we need more shepherds than we do elders. Now, I'm not disqualified, you know, but I think we need more shepherds. This is why... Essentially, and then, well, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, It is he, meaning Christ, it is he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. You see, this is why we do not call our ministers pastors. Okay, there's an exception, but anyway, we do not call our ministers pastors. 
Because ministers and pastors slash elders slash bishops slash shepherds have different roles and responsibilities. Now, those roles and responsibilities may overlap from time to time. But before I became an elder, I didn't make a big deal about it. If somebody called me Pastor Gibbs or Pastor Tim or whatever, I did not make a big deal about it. And I did not, you know, stomp up and down and throw a fit and say, I'm not a pastor, I'm a minister. You know, and, and I didn't, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't do that. But in my own mind, I understood there was a difference. I understood that I was not a pastor. We had pastors, elders. I was not one. Then a few years ago, things changed a little bit. And I became both pastor and elder. So now I don't have to correct anybody. I just go with it, you know, because it fits. But that explains that a little bit. Now, third thing, real quickly. Elders' responsibilities that we see from this section. Peter instructs his fellow elders on how they ought to lead. First of all, he says, take care of God's flock. And I think that's important there. Take care of whose flock? God's flock. Y'all are not the elders' flock. Y'all, we are God's flock. And we take care of that flock. It's a responsibility of the elders, the pastors, the shepherds to take care of the flock, feeding them and remember and protecting them and instructing them as needing. Remembering that the flock is on loan from Christ, who is the chief shepherd who is going to call us as elders. Accountable to how we oversaw. Secondly, he says, oversee with humility. Yes, decisions must be made and should be done with the overall best interest of the congregation. And not everyone will be happy. But it has not to do with what I want or my desire. One of the things that is important to remember is that I may be an elder. But I am in submission to the eldership. We may have a Vote. We've never really done this per se within the eldership, at least, you know. But, you know, let's just say that there is a major important decision, you know, and, and, and the vote is four to one. And I'm the one. How am I going to act? Am I going to storm out of there and make sure that everybody, every one of you knows that I was against it? It was them other four guys. They chose to do that. I was against it and I'm going to give you every... You know, when the Supreme Court makes a decision and they have a vote, they issue two decisions. They issue the majority decision, which is what's going to happen. And then they issue a minority, the dissenting decision. In which the justices who got outvoted get to write why they think they should have won and why the other people were wrong. That's not the way an eldership ought to work. If I'm outvoted four to one and when I come out here, you ought not to know that it was not unanimous. You as a congregation ought to believe that every, because in a sense, every decision is eventually unanimous within an eldership. 
And you should, I should be humble and humble enough. And you other four guys too. But you know, humble enough that, that I'm going to let the decision of the eldership dictate over my, even maybe my own desires. We should not be ruled with an iron hand, but with love, patience, and kindness. He goes on to say, be examples, the ultimate form of leadership by examples. Elders should be those who lead in all, by example in all areas of spiritual life. And then he says, remember that we have a higher authority. It is a heavy responsibility to oversee God's flock. It's one in which I believe the elders of the church are going to be judged on and held accountable for. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, we see that responsibility as well as our responsibility to the elders. When the writer says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Keep watch over you as men who must give account. Obey them so that their work may be a joy, not a burden. So the elders have a responsibility to the congregation. The pastors have a responsibility to the flock. But we also have a responsibility to the chief shepherd. To God. Individual members have a responsibility to the eldership. To the pastors. To the bishops. To the overseers. Now I know that this lesson this morning has not been just what we call, you know, inspirational. Or or maybe not even encouraging to some extent. It's more one of those teachings lessons but when Paul told Timothy to preach the word he said sometimes you're going to have to instruct sometimes you're going to have to teach and this is what Peter talked about and I don't think it hurts us to remind ourselves why we do things the way we do things you know we don't remind ourselves why we raise a whole generation that eventually doesn't know why well I don't know why we have elders I don't know why we don't have pastors I don't know why you know this or that and so it's important That we instruct ourselves and remind ourselves. If you're here this morning, however, and there's some way that we can help or encourage you, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903 903- Six four five two eight nine six. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at eight one eight West W M Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas seven five six three eight. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at nine thirty a.m. for Bible class and ten thirty a.m. for worship service. Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.